Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We're truly thankful for all of our listeners, subscribers, uh, those people who come up to me in the street and say, we love your podcast. We learn so much. Please continue to suggest guests to us, topics you want us to cover. Today is a little bit nuanced because we'll be interviewing Brookings Senior Fellow and Congressional Expert. There is a such thing as a congressional expert. We dig into it. Dr. Molly Reynolds. And Molly's going to talk about everything that we need to know about the filibuster, reconciliation, and all things Congress. You know, that nuanced stuff. So when you're around the water cooler at work, talking with your friends, or you want to sound smart at dinner, you at least know what the hell you're talking about. But before I get to Molly, I wanted to talk about something that happened that many people haven't really paid attention to, and that's President Biden's executive order on guns that he issued last week. In case you missed it, President Biden issued a sweeping executive order on guns this past week. It was likely in response to the recent surge of mass shootings that we have now seen return with a vengeance as the country is opened back up. The executive order has five parts. One, it will require the Justice Department to specifically regulate so-called ghost guns. These do-it-yourself kits, so do gun shows and gun shops that allow people to make their own guns at home without serial numbers. Yes, it's like Ikea. You go, you get you a kit, and you build yourself a ghost gun. Not Mission Impossible, but like your regular uh, Saturday morning gun show. Number two, it would also subject handguns that include arm braces like those used by the shooter in Boulder to be subject to stricter regulation. Number three, the order announces billions of dollars in community peacemaker violence intervention programs with credible community-based messengers. Number four, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, will start reissuing its annual reports on gun trafficking data. Number six, the administration appointed gun control advocate David Chipman to lead the ATF, the agency that regulates handguns, but who hasn't had a director since 2015. This is all good and necessary, but you know what's missing? Congressional action on background checks, like closing the Charleston loophole and the boyfriend loophole, congressional action banning assault rifles, and money and resources to the ATF to actually enforce existing laws on the books and get guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Many of you all know, I have a CWP. I'm a gun owner. I took my CWP class with none other than my friend, Nikki Haley. I have been for some time. But like most gun owners in the country, I support all of this in real action from Congress to limit who can carry a gun. Because while I think there is a right to bear arms, like every other right in the Constitution, it's not absolute. And we absolutely have to limit who can have a gun in this country. Why won't we? Well, again, we talk about them a lot on this show because of people like Joe Manchin prevent reforms like this and who won't support ending the filibuster, which, if ended, could pave the way for reform beyond executive orders. That's why we're interviewing Dr. Reynolds today, because we need a path forward beyond Joe Manchin and beyond the filibuster, because even the best executive order on guns doesn't go far enough. And that's that on that. Now on to our interview with Dr. Molly Reynolds. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do, too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it 
you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So welcome to another great episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I have a feeling we're going to learn a lot about things we hear about on TV often, and sometimes we throw those words up like filibuster and reconciliation, etc. But today, we actually get to learn what they mean with none other than the incomparable Molly Reynolds. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, you know, we always start giving our listeners just a little background. And so uh, I guess my first question is, why did you decide to study Congress? I mean, what, that, that's just a, that's a different thing. So tell me yeah. why, why, how that came about. So I've always been pretty interested in politics. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in a house where we talked about politics a lot. And when I went to college, I decided I was going to be a political science major. And I sort of tested out a couple of different things that I might think I want to do. I did a an internship on a, a presidential campaign that um, I have a lot of great stories from, but I learned that campaign politics was not for me. And so <laughs> the, um, the summer before my junior year of college, I was lucky enough to get some um, funding from my college to do an internship in Washington. And I worked on Capitol Hill and I just fell in love with the U.S. Congress. Um, there's so much... I felt like there was so much to learn. Um, There was so much to watch even then. And now I'm always learning new things. Um, And so that, uh, that's kind of how I, how I started down this path. And um, I've been, um, I've been doing it for the, you know, more than a, more than a decade now. And (laughs) it's, like I said, I'm, I'm always learning new things. There's always something new and interesting out there that I don't already know. That's funny. That's that's ironic because I I actually interned on Capitol Hill in 2003, I believe, or yeah, 2003, and you came away wanting to study Congress. I came away wanting to be in it. So those are two. <laughs> Those yeah, are yeah, and I always I always tell when I talk to um, young people, I always tell them that like that's what internships are so great for is they teach you what you do want to do and they teach you what you don't want to do. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so it is funny that um, you and I um, both had that experience and, and came away both like still really interested in, in politics, but wanting to do different things. That's right. So we've seen Congress evolve where there was a pre-New Gingrich Congress where they did bipartisan deals. And now we have a body that only seems to do big things along party line votes. What happened and why is Congress broken? I know you could probably spend 30 minutes talking about that, but 
<laughs> Give us the clean answer, I guess. Yeah. So um, I'd say a couple of things. So obviously the election in 1994, when um, Newt Gingrich um, ends up becoming um, uh, coming into power after Republicans take control is um, a big turning point. But I'd sort of take us back a little bit earlier um, to uh, the early 80s. Um, before oh. that, we had this long period of uh, uninterrupted Democratic control in both the House and the Senate. And so that sounds so heavenly today, but go ahead. Well, I mean, part of part of why we had the uninterrupted uh, Democratic control was because of an alliance between um, white Southern Democrats um, oh, yeah, and Northern Democrats that we yes. that we don't we don't um, that uh, we would not want to go back to, um, <laughs> and so. Um, the one result of that kind of stability was an expectation on the part of folks in both parties that Democrats had in the majority and Democrats were going to stay in the majority. And so that really shaped how the two parties um, worked across party lines. So if you were a Republican and you didn't really think getting into the majority was something that was likely to happen, like you had no choice but to um, do things on a bipartisan basis in order to get things done. And so once we, with um, when President Reagan is elected in 1980 and uh, Republicans take control of the Senate for um, six years, that's kind of the first big um, party switch we see in Congress in a long time. And that kind of helped usher in this period of um, more partisan competition for control of mm. Congress, which has really shaped how the two parties I think, work with one another. Um, the other thing I'd say is that obviously the parties are quite polarized. Um, this is driven by Republicans. Gerrymandering. So gerrymandering um, is part of it, but um, it's not the whole story. Um, gotcha. And uh, Republicans in Congress um, have moved to the right faster than um, Democrats moved to the left. So we have this um, sort of asymmetric polarization, but we have these two parties that are really far apart. Um, and there are still things that Congress does do on a, on a bipartisan basis, but we've seen this over the last decade, this rising importance of things like the reconciliation process, um, which you can do with out needing to work with the other party. Um, those have become more and more important for really big party-defining achievements in Congress. So one of the reasons I was looking forward to this conversation is I want to drill down into the filibuster and give our listeners a quote-unquote filibusters 101. So let's establish a foundation for our listeners who are he hearing the term but may not fully understand what it means. Sure. Let's start with, let's start with the basics. Yep. What is, what is the filibuster? So at, the, at like the highest level here, uh, to filibuster something in the Senate means to use any number of tactics to prevent it from coming to a vote. So senators, um, the, the fact that senators can do this comes from the fact that the Senate's rules generally don't put any restrictions on how long the Senate can debate a particular measure. And there's really nothing in the Senate rules that for most things allows a simple majority of senators to decide to stop debating something and take a vote on it. So one way that filibusters happen is a senator goes to the floor, gets recognized to talk about a bill, and just keeps talking until either the bill that he or she is objecting to gets pulled, or he or she gets something that he or she wants in exchange. We don't see this terribly often. This is the like mythical Mr. Smith goes to Washington style um, <laughs> filibuster. We see it occasionally now, but it's really, um, it's pretty uncommon. Most filibusters in the contemporary Senate 
don't actually, again, involve this kind of speech making, involve one or more senators simply threatening to drag out debate indefinitely because they oppose a bill or because they want to get something else in exchange, which then forces their colleagues um, to file what we call a a cloture motion, which is the tool available to the Senate to actually cut off debate and take a vote on something, but that needs 60 votes to pass. So when we hear about sort of things needing 60 in the Senate or the 60-vote Senate, that's what that's referring to, is that the way the Senate has that it can um, end debate on something and move to taking a final vote on it, that motion requires 60 votes to pass. What are the origins of the filibuster? So the um, the filibuster is, I will start by saying, is not provided for um, in the in the Constitution, um, and we got it a little bit um, out of a, a sort of accident of history. So mm. in 1806, the Senate was kind of cleaning up its rule book. It had on its books um, a, a particular motion that. Uh, it wasn't using. Uh, and so at the advice actually of um, of Aaron Burr, who was kind of leading this mm-hmm. effort, they removed it from the rule book. They're just like, this is superfluous. It's not, this wasn't like a strategic decision. And at the time, this particular motion wasn't being used to um, buy a simple majority to end debate. In the next decade or so in the House, the House sort of figured out like, oh, we have this, it's called the previous question motion. We have this motion, you can use it to um, to cut off debate with a simple majority. Maybe we should start doing it. The Senate hadn't really picked up on that, wasn't, wasn't using it that way, wasn't using it for much of anything. So they removed it. And that made possible um, over the course of the 19th century, particularly in the run-up to the Civil War, this ability of um, individual senators to obstruct what the Senate was doing. We get a period before and after the Civil War where um, senators, you know, use various procedural tools to obstruct things in the Senate. Majorities try to limit their ability to do so. Those efforts to limit it meet with more obstruction. And then in 1917, the Senate adopts the first motion, um, the first rule that does allow them to cut off um, debate with a vote. But that vote requires um, a supermajority. And now that's a 60 vote majority. And many times the filibuster, is this true or false, has been used to curtail or prevent progress when it comes to issues and and votes on civil rights? So it is, um, the filibuster has a very strong racial history. Um, It has not been used only to block racial progress, but it it has certainly been um, a tool that has been deployed by opponents of civil rights and um, racial justice efforts over uh, the Senate's history. So a um, little bit of, uh, uh, throw a little bit of uh, data at you. Um, I have a colleague at Brookings um, named Sarah Binder, who's looked at this history in a lot of depth. And when she looked uh, with a co-author at the sort of filibusters that we saw between the first one um, in the 1830s and 1917, about a quarter of those were targeted at racial issues. When she looked at the ones between 1917 and the early 90s, about half of those were um, addressed at um, civil rights. And certainly when we think about uh, kind of our understanding of the, the filibuster today, so much of what we remember about it and its use comes from that middle part of the 20th century when it was yeah, being Yeah, we remember used. Strom, Strom Thurmond reading the phone book protest to filibuster the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Yep, obstruct civil rights legislation um, on the Senate floor. When Americans are polled on the filibuster, is this something voters support? Yeah, so um, it's not something that I think most voters really um, understand particularly well. And like, why 
why do they need to? It's not a, um, uh, it's certainly, um, obviously it shapes what the Senate does um, and what Congress can do. But I think that um, generally when folks are asked about um, the filibuster, their views um, are shaped by sort of whether their party is in power or not. Yeah, so if course. you're, if you're, a, if you are a Republican right now, like maybe you like the filibuster because it's stopping Democrats from doing things during the Trump administration. If you were a Democrat, maybe you didn't like the, or you liked the filibuster because it was stopping Republicans from doing things. Yeah. And so I think in general, Americans care much more about outcomes. And to the extent, so to the extent that they have um, views on the filibuster, they're shaped by kind of what. What is the filibuster letting us do or not letting us do? And frankly, this is also how most senators think about it. Like you hear a lot of senators talk about it in very principled, um, lofty language about the world's greatest deliberative body. But at the end of the day, when it's come, when sort of push has come to shove and the Senate has looked at making changes to the rule, it's usually really connected to an underlying policy issue that is up for active debate. So that brings me to my next question. What uh, what can the Senate do to change the filibuster? Yeah, so um, the um, there are a couple of different ways that the Senate can make changes to the way that it operates. Um, Senate has like a formal rule book called the Standing Rules. You can make changes to that, um, and they certainly could make a change that would alter the way the filibuster works by changing those standing rules. Uh, that takes um, a supermajority of votes to do, um, and so. That's pretty unlikely. Yeah. They can also do when something. You put it, when you put it like that, yeah, that's unlikely. <laughs> when they can also do something, which I think is more likely, which is make a change to what are called the Senate's precedents, which kind of sit alongside the Senate's formal rules and are meant to kind of fill in the gaps for how the Senate is meant to be operating. So like the Senate's rules don't anticipate every possible thing that could come up or every possible situation that could come up on the Senate floor. So we have these precedents that have filled in the gaps over time. Importantly, you can make changes to those precedents with just a simple majority of votes. So that's Good. a much more attractive yeah. um, and easier way. That's how um, Democrats in 2013 made the change to the way the filibuster works for judicial nominations. It's how Republicans made the change in 2017 for Supreme Court nominations. So I think when we talk about right now, will the filibuster uh, be eliminated? That's what we're talking about. Will Democrats use what we sort of in pretty violent metaphor refer to as the nuclear option. Um, but that's the way that they could make um, make a change, either a targeted change or set aside the filibuster entirely with just a simple majority of votes. And talk to us about the talking filibuster. And do you think that's a suitable substitute for eliminating the filibuster? Yeah. So we've heard a lot of conversation about this um, to try and make it harder, more costly for members of the minority party who are trying to obstruct some something. Pain, to, I think, is what Joe Manchin and Joe Biden Yeah. Said. To do that, um, yeah, and inflict some pain on them. Um, and certainly, if you changed the way the Senate operated to, to do that, um, it would be painful for those individual Republican senators in, in the current breakdown who would have to go to the floor and speak for long periods of time. But it's also not costless for the Democrats, for the majority. If you are forcing a Republican um, to actually speak for a long period of time on the Senate floor, that means you're not using that time to do something else uh, in the Senate on the floor that you might care a lot about. So at some point, there's an opportunity cost 
much for the majority, for the Democrats, to letting the minority, the Republicans, use up all of the Senate's time um, trying to prevent something from happening. So I think it's, um, it is possible that we could see the um, Senate Democrats kind of take that first step, um, try and restore the talking filibuster um, in some in some way. Um, but I don't think it would be a particularly like stable state for the Senate. Um, it could, yeah, I see that, it as potentially an, an, inter, an intermediate step to getting rid of the filibuster entirely. Uh, because again, it's like the, the Democrats would, would bear some, um, some costs too. Am I, I mean, am I wrong for believing that whoever wins the majority should be able to govern? Like, is that, is that like, a, that's my political philosophy. I mean, the, you know, the, the country voted for majority, they should be able to govern, but I, I don't know. Let me ask you this. I, before we start getting into the meat and potatoes, and I know we're dragging this out, but this is interesting stuff. Like, I have a feeling people are going to be playing this podcast in classes around the country. I want to talk about the reconciliation process, yeah. because I think a lot of listeners, when we were first talking about stimulus check, that was the first time people heard about the reconciliation process. So I have another lightning round for you. And, you know, I do, I just learned the other day that you can only use the reconciliation process a couple of times. So maybe you could talk about that. But starting with what is reconciliation? Yeah. So um, in 1974, Congress um, made some changes to the way the federal budget process works. Um, they were largely motivated, actually, to get more power for Congress at the expense of the president. Um, and one of the things that they put in this law was something called the budget reconciliation process. At that point, they did not imagine it to look like it does today. This should feel like a recurring theme um, in my in my comments about the U.S. Congress that we we undergo a lot of evolution where we end up with things that don't look like where we started. But basically, um, what the reconciliation process allows for is certain types of budgetary legislation um, addressing taxes and addressing certain kinds of federal spending, mm. um, mainly federal spending to uh, entitlement programs. Um, so things like Medicare, Medicaid, um, farm price supports, student loans. So um, one sort of type of federal spending. Um, and then also uh, you can make changes to the debt limit through the reconciliation process. But within that kind of box. So it has um, to have some you, money attached to it. Got to have a dollar yeah, sign attached to it. It does. It does. And it has to have a sort of a particular kind of federal money attached to it. What are the origins of reconciliation? So the like the original idea was that um, the way Congress sort of thought it was going to do the budget process when it made these reforms in the 1970s meant that in kind of September, just before the new federal fiscal year starts in October, um, they might need a way to make some legislative changes to the federal budget really quickly. The kind of way that they had laid out the budget process at that point meant that they anticipated getting to, say, September and needing to, to do some quick adjustments. So they wrote in this legislative procedure into the law that said certain types of bills could come up for debate in the Senate, but there would be a limitation on how long you could debate them for, be a cap on debate. And that debate cap by saying only um, 20 hours, that is what protects a reconciliation bill from a filibuster. That was kind of what they imagined in the 70s. In the early 80s, um, some members of Congress realized that like, oh, this is actually a really powerful tool for getting around the possibility of a filibuster. Let's try to like use it in some other ways. Um, and that's kind of the start of where we've gotten to now, which is this notion that 
within the rules of the reconciliation process, if you're trying to change taxes or change certain types of federal spending, you can, um, and then there there are some other rules that place limits on the process as well. But within those limits, it's a really powerful legislative tool because you don't have to overcome the threat of a filibuster um, in the Senate. Can Senate Democrats use reconciliation as much as they want, or is there a limit as to how often they can use it? I'm sitting on CNN the other day, and somebody's like, yeah, they can only use it a couple of times on this, that. And I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't know that. I'm not, I need to tap out and go do my research. I'm talking yeah. to Molly soon. Tell me about that. So it's, um, it's a great question. Um, and basically, the way that you start the reconciliation process is in connection with something we call the budget resolution, which is a um, a measure that the House and the Senate um, are supposed to pass once a fiscal year. And that uh, is like a high-level blueprint for federal spending and revenue. And that can, uh, if Congress wants to, um, sort of contain some language that jumpstarts the reconciliation process. So since the, I believe, early 2000s, maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, um, around then, the interpretation um, of of these rules of the budget process has been that for each fiscal year, there can be um, kind of one reconciliation bill that touches um, federal spending, one that touches revenue, and one that touches the, the debt limit. And then if you kind of touch more than one of those categories in one bill, that counts as your bite at the apple. There's yeah. a kind of debate going on right now about- um, I hear the debate with the parliamentarian and thinking yeah, that if they can about slide- how, What I just said is reflective of how kind of um, the process is operated, how folks have understood it. Um, for a while. Um, There's a debate going on right now about whether um, Democrats can go back to that budget blueprint that they wrote early this year to kind of jumpstart the reconciliation process for the American Rescue Plan. Can they go back to it, um, revise it, and then use it to jumpstart a second reconciliation process from that same um, budget resolution? That's what the parliamentarian is um, mulling over, maybe as we speak. Um, And we'll see what, what comes out of that. However, even if the parliamentarian says no- We can just fire, no, the, fire the parliamentarian. That's been done in Congress before, too. You could fire the parliamentarian. I think that's pretty unlikely, um, <laughs> in part because- um, That is unlikely. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that Republicans did that when they when they, the parliamentarian removed their that. tax cuts um, out of order. Um, ultimately, it didn't actually really get them what they wanted. Like it, Firing the parliamentarian, getting a new parliamentarian didn't get them dramatically different legislative outcomes, which is actually one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of um, skeptical that the Democrats Democrats would fire the current parliamentarian. But even if even if the current parliamentarian says, no, actually, you can't revise the budget resolution you already did to start a new reconciliation process, Democrats have uh, the opportunity to do another reconciliation process with um, kind of the next fiscal year's budget resolution. So they have they have more chances, more bites Correct. at the apple between now and the midterms. The biggest constraint or or a big constraint is actually just kind of the legislative work involved in putting together a reconciliation bill. These are big pieces of legislation. You have to kind of negotiate a lot of um, a lot of pieces of the the coalition inside the chamber, outside the chamber, and figure out what exactly you want. How does what you want fit in the box created by the rules? And then you have to use all of the floor time necessary to get it through, to negotiate between the chambers. So it's a time, like any piece of complicated legislation, it's a a time-consuming process. And so um, that's as much of a constraint as this business about, you know, can 
Democrats do a second budget reconciliation process for fiscal year 2021, or do they have to go to fiscal year 2022? And what does the parliamentarian say? That's important, but there are other kind of non-procedural rules, things that matter too. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. So let's move on a little bit to some issues that I know people care about. I feel like we're in the moment where the filibuster is really coming to a head around voting rights and gun control. Do you think either of these will be the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back on the issue of the filibuster? It's a great question. And I want to start by saying that like thinking about what the straw that would break the camel's back is, is to my mind, exactly the right way to approach this issue. Um, as I said earlier, like even when senators talk about this in very high-minded language, it really over the course of history, like changes to the, the filibuster really have been in connection with very specific policy questions um, and questions about what the rule is preventing a majority from getting done. So I think, um, and so that for me, um, in, in part is why it was um, so important when um, former President Obama came out last summer at John Lewis's funeral and said, if it takes eliminating the filibuster to pass new voting rights legislation, we should eliminate the filibuster. Because that's a, a very mm -hmm. kind of significant piece of like elite leadership saying like that I'm trying to persuade you to 
to do this. Um, and so it really is going to be, I think, if, if a change happens, it really is going to be in connection with a particular issue. And I, um, I don't know if it will be voting rights. I don't know if it will be gun control. Um, those are um, obviously very high profile, very important for the Senate to take action on. But, um, you know, asking that question about like, what is the issue um, and how would you get all 50 Democratic senators together in agreement on the thing that you want to do that that would be the catalyst for reform is like the underlying challenge that I think we're seeing kind of play out right now. Is it a real concern that Democrats should have that if they eliminate the filibuster once Republicans regain the majority, that there will be this unpopular wave of conservative proposals? Have we seen that throughout the history of Congress? So I think that um, I think the way to think about this is that um, like why didn't Republicans eliminate the filibuster in twenty seven between twenty seventeen um, and twenty nineteen when they had unified party control of Washington and it was because there were all the things that they really wanted to do they could try and do without the filibuster as an impediment. They could cut taxes through reconciliation. They could confirm mm-hmm. federal judges. They tried to repeal Obamacare through reconciliation and that they didn't that didn't work, but it wasn't because the filibuster was stopping them. It was because they didn't they all agree on what, what to do. Um, and so I think that, um, but I, I think that in, in the future, if there was something on which all the Republicans agreed that a democratic filibuster was stopping them um, from doing, that they would be likely to, to make the change if they were in agreement and they thought it was important. And so from, um, from Democrat, I think Democrats have to ask themselves, like, is what we're, what we're trying to do now that the filibuster um, is stopping is, are we in agreement? Do we think that's important enough to make a change to the way um, the Senate works? The other thing I would say about um, that's, I think helpful from the the Obamacare uh, repeal experience is that um, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> it is what it's one thing to um, to use the legislative process to kind of create new programs. It's a different thing to try to take things away from people um, in mm-hmm. terms of kind of the political popularity. So one thing that we kind of learned from that is that. Uh, People are very sensitive to losing benefits that they already have Correct. in a way yeah. that they are maybe not to getting new benefits. And so that's why kind of that fight became about Republicans want to take away your protections for pre-existing conditions. And so as we as we think about like what might happen in the future, I think those are important things to keep in mind. For years, we've been talking about an infrastructure bill, and President Biden recently released a framework for a $2.9 trillion bill that could be the most significant investment in our human and physical infrastructure in generations. Is reconciliation the only way this happens? And how many more times can, you know, can they go to the well? Or, yes. is, that, or, or is that it? If you, get, if you get this infrastructure bill, you're done in the next two years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that they are likely to end up using um, using reconciliation um, to to try and do some or all of this um, of this package. Uh, it's uh, exactly kind of how that shakes out. I think we'll see over the next um, next several months. But I think at the on your on your question about like is is that it for their um, for their legislative opportunities? I mean, it is like even putting aside the question of like, do you use reconciliation or not? Um, congressional majorities as the midterms approach, it just gets harder and harder to get things done, right. um, both for time and politics reasons. So I think even um, in addition to uh, the reconciliation question, there's just like, how much would they really get done next year anyway? And they may 
you know, they may have another opportunity to use reconciliation um, in calendar 2022, depending on kind of the, the timing and how much time they want to use. But it's, so again, it's as much, some of it's about like, what do the rules say and allow? And some of it's about um, just like, how much time do they have? Um, and how long does it take to get something together that they can get through? Let me ask this question. I, I'm a big proponent, and we talk about it a lot on this show, of D.C. statehood and expanding the Senate generally, especially when we have two Democrats in Cinema and Manchin who are holding us hostage on every single proposal. I make the comment often that we did not vote for Joe Biden in November 3rd to pass an agenda that Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin approved of. But why hasn't D.C. statehood happened yet? And what are the barriers to statehood? Do you think that expanding statehood to territories would make for a better, more functional Congress? So I think um, for me, the the reason to um, to make D.C. a state to expand um, statehood to potentially to other territories, depending on you know whether the people who live there um, are, are in favor of it. Yes. Um, and I and I say this my, as a D.C. resident myself, who um, one of the greatest ironies of my life is that I study the United States Congress and don't have voting representation in the in the U.S. Congress. That's um, a great irony. Yes, but. Um, uh, I think the the reasons to do that are are many, um, but they're not necessarily, like, I don't think Congress would automatically become a more functional place if it got a little bit bigger as a result of having new states. Um, I think that we should give people voting rights in Congress because they're Americans and they deserve to have voting there rights you go in Congress. with those basic fundamental tenets of human um, decency. We didn't bring you on here for human decency <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> let me ask you this last question before I let you go, because- you know, one of the things we started off as talking about is bipartisanship, but should we be concerned about things becoming overly partisan or is bipartisanship just something people talk about in Washington, but that people outside of Washington really don't care about? They just want things done. So, I mean, I think that um, for a lot of Americans, when they talk about wanting bipartisanship, it's because they want things to get done and they have this idea that a more bipartisan Washington gets more things done. Um, yeah, that's and, not the way it works, but okay, I hear you. Yeah, but I, again, but I think that that's the, um, uh, it comes back to like some of, you know, there's a lot of polling data that suggests that Americans love their individual member of Congress, but, but hate, hate Congress, Congress as yeah. an institution. And it's just, I think it's, the, it comes from the same place is that they, they want Washington to work. They want it to do things that help average people. And there is this notion um, that in a previous time, Washington worked better on a more bipartisan basis and got more things done, to which I say there are things that were true about that Washington, like to return to where we started by talking about Dixiecrats, that are no longer true and we wouldn't want to go back to. Uh, so I, But I do think it, it comes from this notion um, that that a more bipartisan Washington would do more things for people. And it's not not entirely clear to me that that's true. Well, Molly, I, I want everybody to know there's going to be a test after this episode. I hope you paid attention and took notes. I learned a lot from you that's going to make me a better commentator on CNN. Thank you so much for giving us filibuster and reconciliation and just the way Congress works one-on-one. -on -one. You've been a special guest, and we appreciate you so much for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. And we just uh, we just had uh, Rayshawn Ray from Brookings on. Yeah. So we, I know it's just been a Brookings day. So thank you all so much. Have a blessed day. Before I let you go, it's a sad, sad moment that we'll go out on. But I wanted to honor the memory of rapper, actor, and entertainer Earl Simmons, where my dog's at, or as we know him, Darkman X. 
DMX. In case you were under a rock this past week, DMX transitioned this Friday. We loved his music and his acting, and in appreciating his art, we all had a front row seat to his pain and trauma, something he talked about often. Here's a gripping clip from X, where he talked about a mentor and friend who put cocaine in a blunt that he smoked as a child. But this guy, man, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, he introduced me to what would be the best part of my life, which would be the rap. But he also, a theme of my life is blessed with the curse. And the curse aspect of it was, um, like I said, I was, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't smoke cigarettes, I didn't smoke weed, I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't do anything. I'm 14 years old. And, um, me and my man should do a robbery one night, and it was his birthday, and we came back, we, we spent the money, I said, hey, you know, take this, go get something, might as well be a birthday, whatever. So he came back with a blunt rolled up. And as I'm counting the money, he likes the blunt. And I said, I, I was impressed. Oh, I, I don't really smoke, nigga. Fuck out of it. And he passed the blunt around. And, um, wow. And I hit the blunt, and I'm like, like, I was no longer focused on the money. It, 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 I never felt like it, like, it just fucked me up. I'm like, the fuck? And, um, I later found out that he uh, he laced the blood with, with, with crack. Mm. My thing, why would you do that to a child? Right. And this nigga, like, like, like 30, you know what I'm saying? And he, and he knew how I looked up to him. Yeah. Mm. He knew how I looked up to him, you know what I'm saying? And I'm why would you do that to somebody who looks up to you like this? I mean, hmm. take your time, brother. Uh, a monster was born. Look, y'all, when the people who you think love you lace blunts with crack, you don't recover from that. We all honor the music and the movies when we reflect on his life. But I also hope we can appreciate his transparency about his trauma and addiction. And I hope we take from that real compassion and action around how we prioritize mental health, how we treat childhood trauma, and how we treat substance abuse. Because as X's life shows us, no person can withstand this type of cascading trauma and abuse without very real and sustained help. Let us be sure to find ways to support people who are doing this work and love the people in our lives who may be living in this kind of darkness. Oftentimes we say rest in peace simply as something we're supposed to say upon hearing of someone's death. However, I'm unsure of anyone I can say I wish finds peace in their rest more than DMX. With that, we'll see you on Thursday. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.